presentation. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Killed him. You can't kill the boogeyman. Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis? Uh, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say. Not in my movie. Cindy! The TV's leaking! Hey, millennials who ruin everything. Welcome back to Reflections of Fear. I'm David. I'm Allison. I'm Bryce. And I'm Chris. And today is a very special episode of Reflections of Fear because it's Bryce's birthday. Yay! Woo! Happy birthday, Bryce. (laughs) Spoiler alert, we're not... Um, actually recording on Bryce's birthday, but by the time this comes out, it'll be Bryce's birthday. So everybody go wish a very happy birthday to Bryce at Dor Yeti on Twitter. Um, and today he wanted to react and review one of his favorite movies. So we're going to be doing a watch along of Ghostbusters. So Bryce, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Ghostbusters means to you and why you wanted this to be your birthday episode? So when I was younger, I had things that are called night terrors, also known as sleep terrors. So I was not allowed to watch anything horror wise. and So Ghostbusters was kind of like that medium in between the two in which I could watch something horror-esque, but that still had comedy and was kid-friendly-ish because I feel like a lot of adult humor in here is pretty hidden so that kids can watch it. But yeah, no, I just really like this movie. It's not a perfect movie by any means. It has a pretty boring middle part and really has no plot until the last 15 minutes. But I really enjoy it. I like the creativity to it all, how unique it is. I love that all four of these guys are kind of together and nobodies. But yeah, I just really, really like this film. It's my favorite film. Uh, beside Gremlins, those are my two favorite films. So yeah, I just really, really like this. And fun fact that both Ghostbusters and Gremlins came out on the same day in 1984, which I think is kind of wild to giant. 80s movies that are horror adjacent at least and i think we all have a very special connection to this movie because we all took part in hhn 29 in some capacity and i remember ghostbusters is a house that we would always rush to at the end of the night quite frequently and i also love that the four main characters in this movie don't have any infighting like there's no conflict between the actual Ghostbusters, which if you think about it, a lot of movies, it's always like the two main characters or at least like the group of main characters always find conflict within themselves. And Ghostbusters doesn't have that, which I appreciate. I also appreciate and we can get into it once we actually start talking about the film. I appreciate that the two main women are pretty strong in their own right. 
and don't let these guys kind of push them around. Like they kind of fight back and are their own people, which is kind of different to see for back in the day. And let alone the horror genre around this time. Outside of slashers, I think they treated women pretty shittily, especially in comedies. So the fact that uh, <laughs> um, the fact that we have two strong women in this, played by two great women, is pretty cool. So I guess we'll go ahead and get into it. So we open up with this librarian kind of walking through the library and books just kind of start floating around and cards start flying and she's pretty oblivious to it. My first note, honestly, that I put was that her outfit and her hair is an absolute serve in this scene. I think she looks fantastic, especially for a librarian and a woman of her age, like pop off, sis. And then my second note was for someone who's supposed to know the library a lot, she keeps getting lost a lot. Bruh. I had that same note. Like, well, first of all, I want to comment. Like, I think this is a great cold open. I think this probably would have scared a bunch of people, like, when it first came out. Because it's really creepy and actually, like, very well set up. How she's just, like, slowly walking through the library and things just start happening unbeknownst to her. Um, but yes, what, what was her name? Can we look that up real quick? I know they like mentioned it a couple times. They do mention her name because he's like interviewing her and asking all these really weird questions. And he's like, don't look at me. I'm a doctor. These are very scientific questions. I know Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. <laughs> I know Ghostbusters doesn't hate women. She's got to have a name. It starts with an A, I think. Alice the Librarian. Alice Drummond is her. Well, she's Alice Melvin or Sherman. I don't. There's Alice Sherman. But yeah, I also commented. I was. I thought it was very funny that you know she was so confidently walking through the rows of books at the beginning, and then as soon as she saw the cards flying out of the shelves, she immediately like freaked out. And as I mean, I would too. But then she kept getting lost running through the shelves. And I was like, girl, I know you know your way around the library. Why are you? <laughs> this is so frustrating. Why are you getting lost? I think she just got hit with that. Like a horror movie character has to get lost and trip when they're getting chased by something thing. So she did that. Um, what I really like about the opening is it gives you no idea what you're going into in the movie. Like you're expecting something either really crazy or really fun. And it's just like this super calm library scene and this ghost comes out of nowhere and scares her. And then it just cuts to the opening. And it seems like a very creep show thing where it's like her screaming and then it looks like a comic book and cuts out to the Owen Ghostbusters. I like that. But yes, I agree that, you know, she should know her way around the library. But if you notice when she's walking through the card catalog, it takes like two, three for, before she even notices anything's happening. Come on, Dewey Decimal System. Does anybody remember that? In like the yes. old libraries <laughs> with the nonfiction books, the Dewey Decimal System. Just a fun thought for the day. Library stands over here. <laughs> Our library stands. So she sees the ghost. It pulls out into the Ghostbusters logo. Then we are introduced to Peter Venkman, played by Bill Murray, who is doing like a test that he's paying them $5 for at that, 
where they have to try and guess the symbol behind the card. And the guy keeps guessing them basically all correct. And the girl keeps getting them incorrect, but he only zaps the guy when he gets them wrong, which is a very weird way of flirting. And my main note from this scene is Bill Murray has the weirdest wink in the world. Okay, so what I noticed is because I didn't pay attention the first time I watched it, but the rewatch, he starts getting them wrong in the beginning, but the more he gets zapped, the more he gets them correct. And at the end, he's like, come on, dude, what's the point here? And Bill Murray says he's testing the effect of negative reinforcement on whatever, on ESP. Yeah, so he starts getting it right the more he gets shocked, but the girl is getting them wronger every single time. So his test was working. Like he actually proved that negative reinforcement works, but it was also a way to flirt with this girl. So I've watched Ghostbusters a bazillion times, and I guess I just never caught on to that. So that makes this scene a little less creepy, but not by much. I think his character is just seen as like this very stupid guy, but they're all a lot smarter than they seem outwardly. Um, coming from an actual man of science who has an actual master's degree um, in neuroscience, I just want to say that this was an actual experiment. I actually researched on it. There are five cards, a star, a square, a circle, wavy lines, and I think a triangle. And um, I think in the original experiment, they were supposed to, like the two participants were supposed to zap each other. But I mean, that's beside the point. Today, no ethical um, or IRB committee would ever approve this kind of test on humans. So I would not call Peter Venkman a man of science. And I give this scientific setup an F. But I did think it was funny, as Allison said, that he actually was proving his hypothesis correct um, as he went on, but he was trying to get the girl, so he wasn't shocking her. But what if she was into that? You never know. We love someone that's good at multitasking. Like, he's completing two goals at once. He's doing his whole research thing, and he's getting the girl. But I don't think he ever got to go on a date with her, so it didn't matter. Also, if you notice, like, he keeps showing the guy that, oh, you got this wrong. But, you know, if he got him right, it's like, oh, you know, I'll put it to the side. I would, If I got it right, I would want to see that I got it right also. Well, I thought it was interesting that the guy in the experiment was never questioning that anytime the girl got it wrong, he was like, you're right, and would put it down. It wouldn't show him. Yes. But then anytime he got it wrong, he'd be like, oh, but you were wrong. And then when he was getting it right, he was like, you're still wrong and put it away. Like, if that was me, if I was getting electrocuted, I think I'd fight it a little more than he did in the end. He also shocks him so much that the gum falls out of his mouth, which I think is hilarious. But the fun fact I wanted to throw out here with Peter Venkman is that it was originally created with John Belushi in mind, which when you think about that, Venkman fits John Belushi to a T. And Bill Murray, I guess, just ends up. If you don't know who John Belushi is, he's the other blue brother. I had never seen that film either. He was big on SNL. He's a little bit chubbier. He was in Animal House and Blues Brothers. Uh, He ended up dying due to a drug overdose, I think, which was unfortunate. Drugs and alcohol. Yeah, which is pretty unfortunate. But, yeah. Yeah, so. Um, No, okay, I remember what I was going to say. Why did I think that 
the guy from the experiment was um, Dana's neighbor at first because I hadn't watched it in so long, but they look so similar. I was like, oh, that's how they introduced him in the movie, of course. Like, he takes place in Vacant's experiments. I was in between that, thinking he was Ray, and then Ray joined them later, and then thinking he was in one of the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. <laughs> I don't remember who I think he looks like, but he looks There's like one of the guy. No, from this, I don't know, Scooby-Doo. There's, is it the guy in the second movie that's trying to get with Velma? I feel like that's that who he Seth looks Green. like. I don't know. That's what I thought. Was Seth Green even born by this point? I guess he probably was. So anyhow, we get through this experiment. Stance crushes or crushes breaks through to tell Venkman that they need to go to the library because they got a call about like an actual ghost. Venkman doesn't want to go because he wants to go on a date or not really a date. I think he wants to have sex with the girl in the office for like an hour and then come over. And Stance completely cockblocks him, and then <laughs> and then. They go to the library. Venkman plays a joke on Egon when they come in where he starts playing with a book and rattling because Egon's trying to listen for noises. Then they have kind of like this back and forth, which my favorite part of the back and forth is when Venkman is like, hey, Egon, remember when you tried to drill a hole in your head? And Egon was like, yeah, that would have worked if you wanted to stop me. That's like one of the funniest quotes to me in the movie. And they interview the librarian to talk about her. They talk. They have some very invasive questions about her. And then they go and try to find this ghost. They find a fully stacked book, set of books, which is funny to me that the ghost had, <laughs> that the ghost had the energy just to stack all these books just for fun. And then they end up finding the ghost and stuff. <laughs> She had the energy to stack all those books because she's an old lady and barely has any energy at all. Ghostbusters was actually a commentary on how aggressive old lady librarians are. Like she had all of this power in the afterlife to stack like 50 books, destroy the library. And then my favorite part is when she's first introduced to the Ghostbusters and he's trying to like flirt with her or whatever. She's just like, shh, and then starts throwing things at him. I think that's great. I think he was flirting with her. Whatever he did. He was trying to like, <laughs> use charisma or something and she wasn't having it i don't know the word shut up was it stance i thought it was venkman it was venkman venkman should not be within 50 feet of any woman in this movie and this movie would be at least 40 minutes shorter if everyone wasn't so horny for no reason which is why i'm an egon spangler stan because he could never uh egon spangler is definitely my favorite ghostbusters for sure um just because he's the grumpy one and i kind of relate um but also i want to talk about when spangler hands fankman the petri dish and it's like here take a sample and he scrapes the ectoplasm off the book and i with his bare hand not even a gloved hand and i was thinking like this is terrible like you're gonna cross contaminate your samples so badly like you're not even gonna be able to know like what you're sampling because you're just gonna get book kit like bookshelf residue this entire episode is brought to you by david's medical degree <laughs> not a medical degree <laughs> i'm not a doctor i just have a master of science it's so cool i don't really care so once they find the ghost 
Vankman, the Stance and Egon send Vankman out to try and talk to her. And I, she tries to talk to, or he tries to talk to her and she hushes him, which is funny because Bill Murray's face to it is just kind of over it. He goes back to it and Stance decides, decides to get uh, some courage to go talk to it or go up to it. But he tries to like run up to her and like grab her even though it's a ghost um which is he says get her which is called back later in the film but the most interesting thing about this is i think this is the only ghost that changes what it looks like in the end because it turns from like a pretty normal librarian ghost into like a terrifying almost what is that movie what's the movie with the kid we just talked about it a few weeks ago Movie with the kid who gets stuck through the TV. Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Yeah, thank you. Oh my god, I knew it was a P. Um, it looks similar to the. It looks similar to the Poltergeist and Poltergeist. The yeah, the thing that like protects the room, that, like comes out and has like the two. I don't know. I think it looks pretty similar. I mean, me personally. Anyhow, so after it like. <laughs> launches itself at them they all kind of run out of library pretty terrified they end up going back to the their office at columbia university in which they get fired and kicked out of and they have to end up finding out finding a new place in which stance gives up his whole what mortgage or house house, yeah houses his parents left him um in order to try and find a place. And they end up finding a very bad looking graffiti boarded up spiderwebs everywhere. Condemned firehouse. I love um, that whole scene. Cause it's kind of like when you have a roommate and you're looking for like your new apartment because they're like, what do you think? And Spangler's like, Oh, it's this, 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 and this wrong. And I think it should be condemned. And then Ray comes through and it's like, there's a working fire pole. We have to get it. So then they turn around and Spangler's like, yep, I guess we're buying it. Okay, but Stance is absolutely me in this scene. Because if I had a working fire pole, I'd be like, let's get it. And then when he's like, let's stay here tonight. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Absolutely. There's no way I would behave all around this fire pole. Like, I would just get a couple drinks in me and just start swinging on this pole like i would probably injure myself (laughs) so badly um but i've seen this building in new york city and it looks just like this still to this day it's kind of weird um but i was reading somewhere that they only filmed like at the new york firehouse for like not even that long like most of it was filmed in a firehouse in LA. But um regardless, it's a it's a cool firehouse and it it still looks like that to this day. So anyway, um as far as like when they encounter the ghost the first time and Peter's like, hey, hey, you know, he's not even into it. And then that's when Ray runs up to him. But little fun fact, whenever they run out of the library, that most of the people standing on the steps are just regular New Yorkers. They're not even extras. 
I actually read that a lot. Like in the first day of filming, they just went around New York City and just did like random shit. And I think in one scene, you can see an actual security guard like (laughs) chasing them, which (laughs) like, it's just crazy. What a first, what a crazy first day of filming. It's really funny to think about now because Ghostbusters is such a like wide known thing. But like in the 80s, when there was no news about Ghostbusters, like it was getting filmed to come out. Could you imagine just these idiots in like jumpsuits running through all of these famous New York buildings when you're just trying to like check out a book or something? That would be wild. Oh, well, in a couple scenes, you can see um, because in New York, when they film movies like this, on one side of the street are the extras. And then on the other side of the street are not extras. And you can usually see like a crowd of people like watching what's going on. So I saw that a couple times in the movie and I was like, oh, there's like the crowd that didn't pay to be or it wasn't getting paid to be there, but still ended up in the movie. This is just like way in the end, but there's one scene before the finale where they have like this, the crowd sitting there and everyone's just standing there like reacting like extras would. And there is one guy in the back that's like jumping up and down and screaming and like cheering for the Ghostbusters. And it very much feels like one guy that's like, I'm in a movie. I'm going to be in this movie because the rest of them are just sitting there. It was me just time traveling back to 1984 to be in this film. So after they get the firehouse, I think think this is where we start seeing them going to get the ecto-1 and put up the sign which is also another one of my favorite parts is when that white and black sign is just being put up and Bankman's kind of like you don't think they'll miss it do you even though it's like the most basic sign that someone would actually miss uh i think stance pulls up with the ecto-1 before it's the actual ecto-1 and i it was like 40 4800 and needed tons of work done with it so Stance is clearly not the best person to go for money advice and it is even more me. I actually read this too. 4800 back then is more than $11,000 in today's money. And to think that they even paid more on that car than I paid for my current car just a few years ago. I was going to say $4,800 even for like a used car now is ridiculous. So it being like 11000 also more expensive than my like brand new car that I have. Like they had to fix everything. They're going through the list of like every single thing in this car needs fixed and it's $5,000. And they're like, okay, we'll we'll get it. How did you find a brand new car for less than $11,000? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so after all this is done... And Egon starts working on their nuclear-powered equipment to capture ghosts, which is insane to me. We meet Dana Barrett, paid by the amazing Sigourney Weaver. And my note literally here in all caps is Sigourney fucking Weaver. I have that note too. But next to Sigourney Weaver, I put Libra Queen um, because Sigourney Weaver and I are both Libras, and I appreciate that very much. So with Dana Barrett, she comes home after and after being kind of harassed by her neighbor across the way called Lewis, who has another very funny line in which he's like, hey, don't keep your TV on so loud because a creep down the hall like was making a big deal about it. And he tried to go out to climb in through a window to turn it off. Couldn't do that. So he turned his TV up higher. So people thought there was a problem with both of their TVs. 
And I just want to say, I need a man who's willing to turn his TV up higher than me so that I don't look like the insane one. He really invented the term himbo back in the day. Like, he is so dumb, but he respects women so much. (laughs) Himbo king. But I had to know that he kind of looks like Vector from Despicable Me in his sweatpants. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, his sweatpants are hiked all the way up. Like, they end right at his ankles. And I was like, oh, my God. This is <laughs> this is so ugly. But honestly, fashion icon. I also love the stupid joke that they've u- they use, like, two other times in this film where he keeps locking himself out of his apartment. Because that's such a real thing that it just kind of grounds the film even more with him. But she ends up going back into aside her apartment after hearing this news of her TV being on loud. Had just went grocery shopping and put eggs with some Stay Puft marshmallows on the counter. And the eggs just pop. The lid just pops open and the eggs just explode. Is probably better than what I was going to say, which hatching explodes and <laughs> explodes. <laughs> explodes and starts to cook on the counter then the she opens the fridge door and there's just an entire temple inside with a dog that growls at her do y'all not have temples in your fridge just me okay um well i i wrote a note about the very obvious foreshadowing in the kitchen where there are stave puffed marshmallow man or I guess not men, but the actual marshmallows on the counter. And I was like thinking, I was like, ooh, foreshadowing. I was honestly just busy thinking about how much food-related horror happened in like 80s ghost films because they had like the weird creepy crawly steak and poltergeist and then the eggs start just blowing up. Like that should be a trope that's used more in horror. So my fun fact about this and Sigourney Weaver is the fact that in her audition, she barked at like a dog. And it was so realistic that that's why they ended up choosing her. Which kind of makes sense for her possession scene later on. But I still want to see the audition video of Sigourney Weaver barking like a dog. A true method actress. And if you notice, Rick Moranis is perfect for Lewis. Because all of his characters are all that nerdy kind of... Like everything that's going to happen happens to them i was gonna say this really is not his world like lewis just exists and things happen to him but it's funny too because like later on when he's getting possessed by vins he's like freaking out and running through new york city and he gets attacked against the window and all of the people dining think he's just like this crazy guy but there's this ghost dog eating him and that's very much his character like he thinks all these things are happening to him and no one cares um can we just talk about how the very first Ghostbusters commercial reminds me of like the very first scene that people do in high school theater where they're like, hi, my name is David and we're the Ghostbusters. And it's so awkward and overly rehearsed. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Venkman also seems entirely over it in that commercial. I mean, he seems entirely over it at all, the entire film, but (laughs) he especially seems over it. Egon seems super into it, though. It's really like this science club of a bunch of nerds, and Venkman thinks he's like one of the bikers from Lost Boys or something. 
Like he thinks he's so much cooler than all of them. Egon is 100% serious 100% of the time and it kills me every time. But if you notice, it's so bad that when Sigourney Weaver walks by the TV, she kind of looks at it and then just turns it off. The thing I love about Egon is he could easily have been an evil scientist if they wanted to go that route. But instead, he's just very serious about paranormal investigations. Which I love. I love a serious scientist. Um, Another thing that I thought was kind of funny and a fun fact that I read was that the number um, that was on the commercial was a 555 number. But to get like more like promotion for the movie during the middle of its release, the director made a line and replaced the 555 number with 1-800 so people could actually call it. And it was like pre-recorded voices of Vankman and somebody else I can't remember. Um, and I think I read that they got a thousand calls an hour like 24 7 for six weeks which is insane to me i did not know about that that sounds like fun i wonder if you can still call it we should try that and see yeah well if we can call it we'll call it and put it at the end of the podcast absolutely because i'm absolutely down to trying to figure out if we can do this so after that after the whole refrigerator tabasco tabasco <laughs> debacle <laughs> we're keeping that um she, we end up meeting Janine, who is an absolute icon in this film and one of the best characters. She, I don't think there's much else to say about Janine. She seems, she seems ditzy, but is also very smart and is very into Egon. A character like Janine or written like Janine can come off so bitchy so fast in the wrong hands. So the a character like that can be so bitchy in the wrong hands and i think it says a lot about jenny's actress sorry i can't remember her name right now annie potts that she is able to handle that character and still manage to make janine likable um but having said that i ship janine and egon very hard i forgot what i was gonna say if you have to yeah so, fun fact for anyone who doesn't know Annie Potts, she's also Bo Peep in Toy Story. Oh, I remembered. So, <laughs> <laughs> there's a seat, she, for, there, there's like a reoccurring joke throughout the movie where she's like, I've quit better jobs than this. This job is the worst. I hate all of you. And Venkman's like, yeah, with your qualifications, you could be in food service or like hotels. But without her, the Ghostbusters would have fallen apart. Like, it's just four idiots running around in jumpsuits doing nothing all day. And she had to handle everything. So she could have lied and said they didn't get any calls and they would have not gotten paid. So the joke about her doing food services in hotels actually goes over into the female Ghostbusters remake because she literally works a hotel. At least Annie Potts does. The actual character of Janine does not, but she shows up as like the concierge of a hotel, which is kind of fun. So after we meet Janine, Dana comes in and... Vankman does his weird flirtation. He fully jumps over like a fence, basically, and door. Yeah, I want to know how many times that took and how many times Bill Murray just face planted the shit out of it. Look, have you never seen a theme park guest vault their way over like a three foot metal fence? I think Bill Murray could have done it in one jump if he really felt like it. I see it every day. 
Vankman also shoots up from the back by just hearing her voice and doesn't even know what she looks like. He's like, ooh, female. Gotta go. I read it as more as, it's her first customer. I have to go talk to her. But I think it makes more sense that it's a pretty woman (laughs) more so than my idea. I think they make it really obvious that like, I think Janine mentions they have someone and she's like, yeah, I'll go talk to them. And he's like, no, I'll do it because he knows that it's like a woman. So there's a potential. But the funny thing is he flirts throughout the entire movie, but I don't think he ever gets with anyone. Like it's implied that he gets with Dana in the end. They kiss in front of the building. Yeah, they kiss. But that's implied later that like they get together. I hope they didn't for Dana's sake, but. Spoiler they definitely got together because they have a child in Ghostbusters too. So they end up kind of doing some research on Dana. Ray and Egon offered to inspect Dana's apartment and uh, the word Zool. And of course, Vankman offers to inspect her apartment personally in which he tries to seduce her but does not turn out well at all. Dana is so over it by the time they even step into the apartment, which makes me love Dana because I feel like any other film with this character, she probably would have been like wooed and it would have been great. But like Dana is just, she likes Vinkman the least out of the three. She's done with him. She knows he's playing tricks and trying to flirt with her. And when he is like, well, nothing's in your fridge. She like genuinely gets pissed off about it, which queen. You know what was in her fridge, though, that I wrote down? I don't know about you guys, but I looked at that one random glass casserole dish that was in her fridge, and I was like, I feel like everybody in their childhood had that casserole dish. It was one of those, like, whitish yellow ones with, like, the flour on it, and I was like, everybody has to have one of those, like, casserole dishes growing up, and that's all I noticed in that entire scene. That, and then the apartment building looks very evil, and I think it's a real building in New York City, too, which kind of scares me. I feel like the most unrealistic thing about this movie is that she ends up, like, going for Vankman at the end because she is so against him the entire movie. Like, when he's checking out her apartment and tries to go in her room and she's like, nothing happened in there. And he's like, that's a shame. She looks so pissed off. But it works somehow. Uh, but the reason I think this movie is, like, overrated is because all of the straight white men want to be Vankman so bad when they could be any of the other Ghostbusters. Don't call Chris out. I feel like Vankman is like what straight people think they come off as when in reality they're just being creepy. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing else to say after that. So after all that happens, the Ghostbusters officially, we like see Janine closing up shop for the night and she gets a call and it's their first official mission. They go to the Sedgwick Hotel where... They are told to be very quiet about it. And literally the first thing that happens as soon as Venkman enters the hotel is goes, says, where's the ghost? It's so funny because then the call, Gene was like, yes, they'll be discreet. But like they show up to the hotel in the Acto one with a fi- like a giant ghost sign on the car with like their alarms going off and bust into the hotel. It, it's not discreet at all. I love a lot of their visual gags. Like they do the straight jump cut to, they'll be very discreet to like the Ecto-1 pulling up with a siren and they come out in the giant jumpsuits. And there's the one hotel guest that's like, 
so what are you guys here for? And they're like, oh, there's roaches. But it very obviously says Ghostbusters like all over their uniform. And he's like, I'll just take another elevator. It's fine. I also love the reveal of the Ecto-1 because last time you saw it was a pretty shitty paint job. And Ray did a really good job on it. And it looks gorgeous. And once they get into the elevator is literally my favorite scene from this movie is when they're talking about how they've never tested it and it's a nuclear bomb, basically. And Venkman is like, all right, turn me on. And Egon, or not Venkman, Stance says, turn me on. And Egon literally flips his proton pack on and then like shoves Venk, or yeah, Venkman out of the way to try and get away with it, which I think is such a funny little like gag that Harold Ramis did with Egon. Sorry, I'm going to drop another science fact on y'all. But they keep, like in this scene they're called proton packs but they keep saying they're like powered by like positron energy and protons and positrons are not the same thing i just want to throw that out there a positron is the antimatter equivalent of an electron and i kind of cringed at that there was a lot of stuff in this movie that even me having like no scientific background it was like this all sounds like they just like made up some words or did like a sci-fi word generator and threw them together because any of the quotes they use for like the horror nights house that ray says just it's just 10 minutes long of him putting a bunch of words in a sentence and it's like maybe you understand those words separately but they make no sense in order i think in a way that's the joke is that they don't know what they made. So they're just trying to say possibly anything. Egon might be the only person that actually knows what he's doing. But even so, I think he thinks he's smart, but he's not like fully aware of it. I think Egon knows that he doesn't know what he did. Like he definitely made the Frankenstein's creation of ghost equipment. But then Ray, who knows the least about everything, is like 100% confident that it's going to work and he knows exactly what it is and how it works. And everyone else is like, okay. But doesn't he also have a thing where they're talking in the beginning about noticing ghost activity? And he's like, yeah, but I saw the great migration and what was it in the ocean? (laughs) It was like some great moss migration in the ocean. Like everything he says is ridiculous, but he's confident. So you just accept it. So once they get out of the elevator, they (laughs) are greeted with a noise and they turn around and set off their proton packs and it ends up being the maid for the hotel and the way she says what the hell are you doing is so funny to me and it also shows how actually dangerous these proton packs are she's lucky she was behind that thing because that thing basically destroyed her cart um the ghostbusters ends up splitting up ray comes across a disgusting blob as he calls it which is a green, now that we know, Slimer ghost who is eating? He's eating. Yeah, he's eating off the food cart. Disgustingly, he ends up seeing Ray and runs away. Then Venkman runs into him and they just kind of have a stare off. And Ray gets on the radio to, or not Ray. Oh my God. Venkman and him have a stare off. Venkman then calls over to Ray and Ray says, don't move, he won't hurt you. And the first thing Slimer does is just slam into Venkman and completely slime him. And when Ray comes up, Venkman says, he slimed me. And Ray, instead of being like, oh my god, are you okay? Like, is, are you good? 
he literally goes, oh my God, that's great. Can you move? Their reactions are totally not what I expected. Like, I thought it was going to be like an ooh, he slimed you kind of joke or something. But then you've got Ray being like, that's amazing. Let's get it. And then Egon's like, we have to, we have to put this in a petri dish. It's got to get done. But I love how comedic this scene is, like from the start to finish. And it's all these jokes that you wouldn't think would work well together, but they do. Like the concierge guy being like, yeah, we're going to get the room ready. It's all set up. It looks great to the woman outside. And there's just all this crashing behind them. And you can hear the Ghostbusters screaming. And he's like, yeah, it's going to be great for your dinner in 20 minutes. And I think they open the doors later and it's just destroyed. I think this is definitely the most well-crafted scene in the movie and definitely the standout sequence in my mind um but i just wanted to say that i thought slimer was kind of (laughs) cute and i was reading another fun fact and his original name was onion head and he actually wasn't called anything in this movie except like just a random ghost or the they called him what ugly spud um or like a class five vapor something 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 monologue um but i just also wanted to say never forget the slimer but from our (laughs) walkthrough of ghostbusters that one time once again if you know it's vinkman always yes vinkman vinkman you want to say peter anyway (laughs) anyway Vinkman, no matter what happens, just so deadpan. Like, even when he says, he slimed me, just no reaction, deadpan. But also, if you notice, this is his second run-in with slime. This movie definitely revolves around everything happening to Vinkman, and the other Ghostbusters is kind of reacting to it. As much as I know that I'm Egon, I think I would very much be Venkman with ghost situations. Because if there was a ghost and it was like funny like that, I think I would just be sitting there like, you're you're fucking kidding me. Like, I'm going to get attacked by this green blob thing that's eating uncooked hot dogs. Like, I very much understand his pain throughout the movie. He's having a horrible time and no one else gets attacked by the ghost as much as he does. So once... Venkman gets slimed. Slimer ends up going into the dining room where it's being set up for a large party for clearly well people with good money, <laughs> rich people. And so they enter trying to be uh, kind of not being seen by Slimer because he's like drinking through all the wine. And, <laughs> and this is where we kind of get our first. I guess our second foreshadowing in which Egon tells the group to never cross the streams because it could cause like a big explosion and like reverse the particles or something like that. Particle reverse. I don't know. It's not, real science. not real science. In which once again, Venkman kind of gives a deadpan reaction and goes, Oh, wow. Thanks for that safety spell. Now uh, you go to the left, you go to the right. Let's get it. This is also where we're introduced to the ghost trap in which Ray says not to look into it. And Egon says, Ray, I looked into it, (laughs) which is funny. And they capture Slimer, come out. They like bust out and give the famous line of we came, we saw, we kicked its ass. And this is where they start kind of giving the bill to the hotel manager, which it's so funny that Egon is in charge of how much 
is each and Venkman is just kind of going off whatever numbers he throws up. I just love the way they have the hotel manager speak because he's like, that's ridiculous. I had no idea it'd be that much. I won't pay it. And they're like, okay, then I'll release it back. And he's like, how much was it again? And pulls out the checkbook. But his his little voice there just cracks me up. What a good impersonation of that character. (laughs) (laughs) So after this, we start to realize like the city is running running with ghosts basically they're everywhere there's tons of things happening we get that weird dream sequence with ray <laughs> getting a blowjob from a ghost and you're just kind of seeing everything happening and then that's when i think after this is when we're introduced to winston zedemore played by ernie hudson no my question is so where did all the ghosts come from because obviously they were there before and i know new yorkers aren't easily phased but i think if there were like hundreds of ghosts in the city they'd be questioning that and then why are the ghostbusters the only people that ever thought about catching them in the first place like no one ever thought they were gonna do anything about it before no one called an exorcist or a priest they were just like whatever (laughs) well i think all the ghosts are showing up because gozer is coming back i think it's kind of because later on you have the whole conversation with Wentz as Edmore and Stance in which they're talking about the end of the world and how I, like the dead will rise and all that. And I think that's basically what's happening. What came first, Ghostbusters or Dawn of the Dead? Because one of the two very much copied. The, well, I guess they technically copied the Bible, but um, no, I... No, because in the Bible, at the end of times, just like Winston and Ray were talking about, like, the dead will rise. But I also know that that was a plot point in Dawn of the Dead and was the reason for why the zombies were rising there. But I I don't want to gloss over this dream sequence with, (laughs) with Ray because, I don't know, that scene was just, I mean, it was funny, but it was so, like, out of place for me and i get that it was a dream i guess but it was such a random scene but i mean i guess it was funny because of ray's uh physical comedy i never thought it was a dream sequence i thought that actually happened but the weirdest part for me is like they're all sleeping on like these twin beds together or something and he pushes one of the guys off the bed during that whole thing and i just can't imagine being the guy that gets knocked out of bed because of a ghost blowjob in a dream. I think he's the one that falls off the bed. I, thought yeah. I think he's the one who falls off the bed. <laughs> well, if he's the one that falls off the bed, I feel bad for the guy that was still there. But also, do these guys not have apartments that they go back to? Like, do they sleep? Where do they sleep before they got the firehouse? Probably I was wondering that. Like, I, did they sleep in their offices or something? Can they not afford to live in New York? They could have moved anywhere else, which I actually had a note and I was wondering why everything happens in New York City. Like I want a Ghostbusters in Idaho or something random, which might be the newest one, but everything happens in New York. So I'll give you guys another fun fact since you wanted it to happen outside of New York. Ghostbusters was originally like the first drafts of the scripts and everything was set in the future. And that Ghostbusters was like a worldwide thing, agency, that it wasn't just New York. But once the director got on, he ended up changing it so that they were just kind of a startup company. I also want to throw out another fun fact because I forgot to talk about it. That Slimer, uh, they... uh, So another fun fact I wanted to put out there is that 
Dan Aykroyd actually thought of Slimer as John Belushi's ghost, which matches up pretty well if you know Animal House and John Belushi's character in it. I, I also read about the the first draft of Ghostbusters with the worldwide web Ghostbuster network futuristic thing. And I saw that it was supposed to cost them, sorry, about um $300 million in 1984 money, which is why they didn't do it. But I don't know. It kind of reminds me of Charlie's Angels. And now I want a Charlie's Angels Ghostbusters crossover. <laughs> I've just been thinking Men in Black this whole time. Like, I feel like Ghostbusters in the future, if it happened, we wouldn't get Men in Black. So I'm kind of glad we got the little startup thing. I think that's a lot more fun and fits them better. Ghostbusters walked so Men in Black could run. So we're introduced to Winston Zeddemore, who is literally in this just for the money. And as long as he has a steady paycheck, he'll believe in whatever they want him to believe in. So he's kind of our first member of this hall that isn't fully believing in ghosts or whatever is happening. He's also probably the most normal person in this entire movie. He's definitely the audience is into everything that's happening, I feel like, which is why I wish he was introduced sooner. And Winston is played by Ernie Hudson, but was originally written for Eddie Murphy. But Eddie Murphy didn't take it because he was doing he was doing Beverly Hill Cops. He wanted to do Beverly Hill Cops instead. So it had been... I mean, I love Ernie Hudson, and I think he does the best in this role, but it'd been interesting to see, like, John Belushi as Venkman and Eddie Murphy as Zedemore. So once we meet him, that's when, honestly, the film kind of slows down for a little bit. I feel like you picked up the speed and it slows down, and we're introduced to the EPA's inspector, Walter Pegg. Yeah, nobody gives a fuck about him. I want to talk about, though... Um, that one random like scene in the movie that doesn't add anything except that I don't know what instrument Dana plays because she's walking out of the Lincoln Center and with the guy with the violin case and we find out that she's a musician and that's what she does for a living but then like never says what instrument she plays and I, I don't know I want to know I'm a completionist and the fact that I don't know like really bugs me. I feel like if they had told us what she played, it would have made it a lot funnier. Like I think online said cello. But so he says, oh, you were definitely the best in your row. And she's like, that's crazy that you could hear me over the entire orchestra. And I thought she was in a choir until that point. It's funny that you say it's funnier it would be funnier if we did know and I'm imagining her like play the tuba or something like could you imagine <laughs> like little old Dana with a giant instrument like the tuba although I think she would be heard if she played the tuba well I think with her walking around with the big case it's implied that she plays the cello oh I didn't notice the case well disregard what does she do with the case when she's talking to Vankman because she I don't think she had it when he's flirting with her it's probably just one of those random continuity errors that are sprinkled throughout the movie because there was another one where um, Zedmore is driving and this is when they're talking about the um, end of the world and the, the dead rising from their graves and Ray's in the passenger seat. But then when they come back to the firehouse after it explodes, Ray's driving and Zedmore's in the passenger seat. So I have always noticed that, but I think it's because time has passed because it's pretty early morning or night when 
Winston and Ray are driving. So I think they just kind of shifted so Winston didn't have to drive the whole time. But Ernie Hudson's driving acting is the best acting I've seen. Most people don't keep their eyes on the road. Ernie Hudson was like, watch. Honestly, I think they just stopped at like a 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee. They were on a date night. I 100% they were having a little date. And every time Zed Moore says something, he's like, hey, Ray, so what do you think about this? It's It was a date. <laughs> it was a date. I was just going to say, like, I ship, like, just like I, I ship um, Janine and what's his name? Aegon. I ship <laughs> Egon. I ship uh, Zed Moore and Ray very, very hard. I love those two together. We were actually talking about this on Twitter the other day, which I guess whenever this gets posted, it'll be like a week ago. Anyways, this is a very forward movie for its time, and it feels like a very queer movie. Like, Venkman's the only straight person in this film for sure. But what were you saying? We think Zedmore's pan and Ray is bi. I think that makes sense. And they're in love. Absolutely agree. I think Ray's stance is definitely bi and that Winston Zedmore is pansexual. Bankman is definitely straight. Egon is asexual. Lewis is probably just a straight nerd. Dana is definitely pansexual. I mean, it's Sigourney Weaver. I feel like Sigourney Weaver, any character is pansexual. But yeah. So we end up eating EPA invest inspector. Eating? Meeting. <laughs> so we end up meeting EPA inspector Walter Peck, who's kind of a douchebag. Um, and he wants to reevaluate their equipment, but Venkman doesn't allow them. Egon also warns that their containment unit is nearing capacity and that there are dangerous surges of PKE or psychokinetic energy that indicates the sturdy has, city has turned into a supernatural hotspot. We also have Venkman who meets Dana, which is where they're ta- where they have like the musical thing. But he's there to tell her that Zul is a servant of Gozer and Gozerian and has, or I guess just that Zul was a servant of Gozer the Gozerian. And that's who she saw. When Dana gets home, uh, they end up having, to me, the scariest scene in the movie in which she just sits down in her chair and the door is completely lit up. And she looks over and says, shit, and dog, terror dog, Claws just rip through her chair and uh, pin her to the chair and drag her into the room. I just want to comment on the fact that Gozer the Gozerian is a god and takes up residence in somebody's fridge. <laughs> I I don't understand why an all-powerful destructive force would want to live in somebody's fridge. Like, you have the whole apartment building to yourself. They probably have the best air conditioning. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm cutting you off before you can finish that joke. But you're probably right. So, once Dana gets pulled in, Vankman arrives soon after. Or no. I think right before Vankman arrives, we see Lewis at his party where he's invited all his uh, people he does his taxes for so that he can write it off on his taxes. And he's just out here airing everyone's dirty laundry when he introduces them. Keymaster? More like 
tea master. <laughs> no, he does have the tea on everybody. But my favorite character in the sequence is that big blonde woman who <laughs> dances with him. I'm like, wow, an absolute icon. Where was she in the Ghostbusters house? His whole dinner sequence is so funny because he still is someone that everything happens to. But like these people are just okay with it. Like he walks up to the blonde girl and is like, let's dance. Maybe they'll dance with us. And she doesn't even question it. They start dancing and no one else dances. And they're like, okay. Uh, but I think the best part of that scene is when he goes to throw the coat in the closet. And he's like, all right, who brought the dog? Like he's just not bothered that it's this like demon dog from hell. But the fact that there's just a dog in his apartment and then it's chasing him. And he's like, there's no dogs in this building. You're not allowed to have pets. And somebody calls it a bear at some point, too. Like, have these people ever seen dogs and bears? Like, this thing has, like, glowing red eyes and horns and, like, giant front paws. Um, but I, I do want to say that the CGI key master of the dog running around, is it, it kills me. It is so bad. And I know it's... 1984 but we got like poltergeist which had like great cgi effects and it's just like so jarring seeing like this really badly rendered cgi key master dog running and then stops and it's like this perfect practical puppet and then it takes off again and it's bad cgi if i remember correctly i think a lot of ghostbusters or most of it was done practically and then they added it on top so i think it was the practical puppet moving and then they tried to just throw it over the scene and that's why it just looks awful because if it's moving anywhere stationary it looks like realistic but the second it starts moving more than two feet i have nothing to say i also want to know why it specifically chooses lewis because there's a thousand people in that room it could have ended up possessing but outside of it being good for the story why does it choose lewis this is actually something i researched um it chooses this is the the movie maker's explanation for why it possesses Dana and Lewis. It was because their apartments on the blueprint just happen to be in the right spot for possession. They give no other reason except their apartments are where they're supposed to be, and they're the owners of those apartments, so they're the ones who get possessed. That's the reasoning. Whether it's good or not is up for debate. It's also interesting that they happen to pick two characters that are at least very, they're not like close, but they interact probably daily because they are so close to each other physically. Um, but I think it's interesting that it, what's the word? Oh, maximizes their personalities when they turn into the terror dogs because they turn more doggish, but Dana is very much like the pit bull that's scary and chases people down the street or Doberman or whatever, like the big scary dog. And then... Lewis turns into like this puppy and I think it's the funniest thing because like later on in the firehouse when the EPA is yelling at them he's just like smelling Egon's hand and like he's having such a blast and when they're like do you want coffee and he's like yeah I want coffee like whatever you guys want. I feel like Zool is definitely the Doberman of the movie and Vince Clortho is definitely the pug. Um, but like, could you imagine how different this movie would be if one of the terror dogs possessed the old lady who like was like peeking out her door when the dog was running down the halls? Like, I, I want to see that movie. 
Also, I really just want to see like Lewis becoming the super sexy one and then Dana becoming like this <laughs> puppy dog. <laughs> because this movie does a lot of things that subvert expectations, but that for sure, like he was dumb the entire movie. If he turned into like this seductress, I think I would have just cried on the spot. And like I thought it, it was killing me when they actually finally do meet up and Zool like takes Vince in her arms and like bends her over and kisses her instead of the other way around. It, it was very funny. So I agree. It definitely subverts our expectations. So after that, Venkman arrives to a possessed Dana, which is another one of my favorite moments is when she opens it and says, are you the key master? And he's like, no. And she just slams the door. She's done with it. She's like, I don't, if you're not the key master, I'm done with you. Uh, and Venkman ends up knocking again, and she opens up again, asking the same question. And this time, he's just like, yeah, sure, whatever, and gets in, ends up finding that she's possessed. She breathes extremely heavy, growls at him, has a demonic voice, which is actually the voice. Uh, it's her voice overlaid with the voice of... Harold, not Harold Ramis, Ivan Reitman, who uh, is the director, which is kind of a fun little fact. When we were talking about this being a very like queer horror movie, they're supposed to be men. Like Vins and Zool are men, and then they just possess whatever body they can. But the second Zool thought that he was the key master, he was like, you know what? Let's do it. Why not? Like They were so into each other. And then it says something about Venkman. He she was growling at him and saying she was like a destroyer of worlds and all this stuff. And he was like, all right, I can get into some role play before he even thinks she's possessed. So. I mean, you also have to know that Zul's absolutely gay man because the drag queen makeup that he gives Sigourney Weaver is fantastic. The orange dress Zul slash Dana has always been one of my favorite looks and I need that dress. And it's very like Dr. Frankenfurter-esque, the makeup that she has. And yeah, it's, it's always been like a, a beautiful look. It's giving me the scene from Enchanted, you know, where she cuts up the curtains and makes a dress. I feel like Zul possesses Dana and then he goes on this like random crafting spree where he just tears up covers or something and makes this like gorgeous dress, curls his hair, puts on some makeup so he can look hot for whenever the end of the world comes. Yeah, because I want to know, does Dana just have this dress laying around? And if so, why is she wearing like a homely coat when she could be wearing this dress all the time? I really need the Zool Possession makeover montage um, <laughs> as an outtake in this movie for sure. And you can definitely chalk it up to them being like the servants of Gozer because when Gozer comes out, like there's no question asked. But Vin's is funny because... They don't ever do anything like they just possess Lewis as he is. And they're like, all right, that works for me. Like they're not picky at all. But Zul had to do a complete makeover before he could like debut to the world. Zul is definitely the dom top in this relationship. And Vin's is the bottom, the sloppy bottom that's just there to be there. And as long as they have some good sex, he's good. Yeah. But this just goes to show how thirsty Vinkman really is like. Oh, you know, sure, I'll be gatekeeper, keymaster, whatever you want me to be, I will be. Also, 
once again, Vankman has such deadpan that once she starts like hovering over the uh, sheets and like when she has the demon voice, he's like, that's such a lovely singing voice. Like he just doesn't care. And it's a weird, this scene could have been very creepy in the wrong hands, but I think they give just enough humor and still a little bit of his creepiness, but not to a point that like it takes away from Vankman or makes Vankman a bad guy. All of Vankman's reactions are really subtle. Like when she starts floating and then like flips over, there's a very clear moment of panic in his eyes. And then he's like, all right, this is happening. It's fine. And then he goes under her and is like, can you come down now? Can we have a like civil conversation? And I just think it's funny because he definitely freaked out and he doesn't know what's going on because he's never dealt with something like Zool or Vins. But he's like, whatever. I can't do anything about it. Might as well have fun. And during the sequence, Vins gets to end up gets up handing gets up handed over to Egon who puts him in this weird headset contraption and sees the terror dog inside him and that one of my favorite quotes from the scene is what you said earlier is when Janine is like do you want some coffee and Vince turns to Egon and goes do I want some coffee and Egon says yes have some coffee and Vince is like yes have some coffee <laughs> Another thing I want to point out is why does Zul have such a fine, basic, small name, but then Vin's Clortho has to come out of here with like the most drag queen name, like Vin's Clortho. Like <laughs> it's just night and day to me. I think that Zul did have like a full name, but they don't mention it a whole lot. But Vin's, anytime he can say it, it's like, I'm Vin's Clortho, this, 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 and this. And part of me feels like it's because Zul is such a big personality and Vin's isn't. So I think it works well that like he's the the super dramatic name. And then Zul's just Jewel. Zul. Um, I also love Egon's reaction to seeing the terror dog for the first time because he looks at it and it's another one of those like, what the hell? And then he just kind of turns around and is like, okay, so that's what they look like. Um, And he's just sitting here acting like a lost puppy. So after these two are brought to the Ghostbusters, Fankman ends up calling Egon to let him know that he found Zool. Egon lets him know that he found Vins and that they have to get these two together. Not realizing how stupid that sounds, especially with the research Egon did. I feel like Egon wouldn't want them together. Oh, no, I think Egon definitely goes, this is an absolutely stupid idea. We shouldn't do it. But then they lose him because of the whole EPA thing. But I feel like we have to mention that at this point, Ray and Zedmore are still on their little date and they have no idea what's going on. Like they show up and I think the EPA blows up the firehouse and they're like, oh, no, we lost the key master. And Ray's like, what is that? Like, he has no idea what's going on. Can we talk about Janine's outfit when the EPA, like, rolls in with their court order? Like, she's wearing this, like, red jumpsuit dress with, like, red heels and, like, this, like, perfect vest, plaid vest, skirt combo. I was like, wow, like, damn, I need that. I also love the way that she's like daintily holding on to Egon and hiding behind him when he's like, you're not going to shut off the machine. Like she's just this little housewife that's like trying to protect their ghost children or something. I love when Egon is just protecting both her and Vince and just has his arms spread out like 
they're not going to be able to move him out of the way. But he is fully ready to protect these two. And it isn't really until Vankman comes down that he lets kind of loose. And Vankman is basically like, don't do it. And <laughs> uh, freaking Walter Peck is pushing them to do it and ends up doing it. And it's always funny to me, Walter Peck's reaction once the brakes start moving, he's just like, oh, shit, I just fucked this all up. I love the dynamic of all the characters there because you've got the cop that's literally there because he's getting paid to. Like, you can tell he does not want any part in this. And then Vankman, or Egon's super serious. And he's like, you will not do this. It's a danger to the world. And then Vankman's like, okay, do it. You shouldn't. We'll see what happens. Walter Peck is also a psychopath because... He literally tells the cop to shoot him. He goes, okay, you can shoot him. Like, Walter, what are you doing? And the crazy fun fact that I learned about this character, and specifically because of this scene, is that people would go to this actor and, like, punch him. He got in, like, fights and bars because of this character. People hated him because of this character. They would go up to him and call him dickless, which I think is kind of funny. But... Like, they were extremely rude to this actor just because of this character, which is kind of the insane portion of the Ghostbusters fandom that needs to be in check. I think one of my favorite scenes is after they do all the random nonsense where they get arrested and then the mayor talks to them and the priest shows up and there's just everything's going on. Um, <laughs> Ray calls him dickless and then the mayor's like, is all what they're saying true? And Vankin's like, yeah, it's true. He has no dick. I saw it. And I just think that's hilarious because for most of the movie, like, they're not very... Uh, they don't really curse a lot. It's not anything crazy. And then they're like, nope, he's got no dick. We hate him. Vulgar. They're not very vulgar for most of the movie. Yeah. I also completely forgot that we bypassed Egon's little explanation to everything happening by using a Twinkie, which has one of the most iconic quotes of that's a big Twinkie. But yeah, so they get the EPA shuts off their ghost trap system. I don't even know what it's specifically called, but it keeps all the ghosts inside of it that they uh containment unit is what it would be considered um that gets shut off which completely explodes the firehouse basically and releases all these ghosts you have slimer eating hot dogs in one big gulp you have this weird zombie taxi driver thing that appears that i want to know if that was the actual taxi driver beforehand or if this was just an empty taxi that the ghosts got put it like i need explanation to this because he's not like any of the other ghost give him his own spin-off movie no i really liked this sequence i thought it was a little random because it it never gets addressed again like do they get recaptured or or what well, it's funny because there's a whole scene where they're like convincing the mayor to let them go. Meanwhile, all these ghosts are just destroying New York City. And I love when they're like, you know, if we're wrong, throw us back in jail. But if we're right, you'll have saved millions of registers voters. And that's what like sells someone letting them go. But they never go and get the ghosts. Like they go after Gozer and it's this whole like really big thing and they have like all the paparazzi set out and all the like fans of the ghostbusters waiting but what's happening in the rest of new york like they're just they're dead everyone's dead i also there's a small sequence or scene in this that i think it's looked over a lot is when they're in the jail and for some reason they have all the blueprints for everything that they allowed them in but what's so funny to me 
is that everyone starts out by the cell bars, but as the scene goes on, everyone gets closer and closer to it. And it gets to a point where like, I feel like they had Harold Ramis like have to notice it. So that it was a part of the joke because Egon just kind of looks around the middle of his monologue and is kind of like, hello, (laughs) I'm not talking to you guys. And I also love when Winston Zeddemore is like, I have to get a different like lawyer. Like this is not going to happen. Like he's like, I believe you guys. But the judge is not going to, so I'm not playing with it. Their explanation for Shandor, the architect, or all of Dana's building or something is so wild and has absolutely nothing to do with the movie. And also, the jail scene sort of feels like that because they're all arguing about random things. And then Ray's like, by the way, here's all these blueprints I have and just pulls them out and they start talking. But they're like, yeah, this guy that I don't even know what his backstory was because it was so irrelevant. But then at some point, he just becomes an architect and hates people and wants to kill everyone so he starts the cult of gozer and then they start doing like cult meetings to build this ghost building and bring on the end of the world or some shit i have no idea but i just thought that was funny and it ends with the line where he's like your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of spook central because that's iconic i feel like it's looked over a lot that is a very great line Uh, also my question throughout that whole scene is you guys had the blueprints like a week ago. You had the knowledge of Zul like a week ago. You could have stopped all of this from basically happening, but you just allowed it to happen until you finally put it together in a gel cell. Seems a little bit crazy. But at this point, everything starts kicking up. I just feel like a lot of it had to do with the fact that Venkman kept wanting to convince Dana to go on a date. So I think if he wasn't so horny the entire movie, they could have done this like weeks ago because the Ghostbusters were all putting it together and finding all the information the entire time. But when Egon was like, yeah, we'll go check in on Dana. Venkman's like, you can't. I have to. She'll only talk to me. So it's definitely his fault that all of this is happening. And they only have to fight Gozer because he's like this. So what we're saying is the true villain of this film is Peter Venkman. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> So everything kind of kicks into high gear at this point after they meet the mayor. Uh, you get the reigning cats and dogs or living cats and dogs living together. Mass hysteria line. So at this point, chaos kind of ensues. The ghost baster chaos. Chaos. At this point, chaos kind of ensues. Uh, The Ghostbusters get released by the mayor. They go to the uh, apartment of Dana and Lewis, where they're greeted with a huge crowd. They have literally every religious person there. They have like a priest and I don't know what the others would be considered, but they have every type of religious priest kind of there, which is so funny to me. And such a subtle comedic little thing it starts off with them all praying and like there's all the people at the end of day sign protesting behind them but the second the ghostbusters show up and start pulling out all their gear there's like a cut back to all the priests and everything cheering and like getting so excited that they're there which i think is so funny another thing i want to talk about during this scene that i feel like makes no sense is that um they're like standing in front of the building and like high-fiving like everybody and giving people hugs And then, like, the road just starts, like, getting destroyed and the Ghostbusters, like, fall down there. And then they get up like nothing ever happened. 
like the scene was just so like unnecessary and I feel like they were just trying to show off their budget at this point. I literally wrote this in my notes. I think this movie would have been so hilarious if it ends with them getting crushed with the street breaking and like everyone's freaked because there's so much hype. They're all so excited. The Ghostbusters are here and it's like celebrities greeting their fans and then the road just caves in and the police car falls on them. I wanted it to just end there and then like goes or destroys the world because that would have been really comedic. But then they were like, no, they have to be alive. We have 30 minutes left of movie. So after they get sucked in, to the street and get out of it they end up being forced to go up i can't remember how many floors 22 flights of stairs which i let me look but i think those proton packs in real life were actually pretty heavy so the fact that they had to do that for 22 flights like they genuinely yeah about 30 pounds fully loaded so yeah, that's insane. I know my proton pack is extremely heavy. So if I had to do it for 22 flights of stairs, you got me fucked up. You're the world's ending. I'm not doing it. That's another one of their like jump cut scenes. It's really funny. Like when Janine was like, yeah, they're going to be super discreet. It cuts them destroying everything and being super not discreet. They had the crowd hyping them so much and there was so much energy and they were excited. Then it cuts to like floor 18 of the stairs and they look like they're dead and they're just dragging themselves up. And I think Zedmore is even like, you know what? I don't want to do this. Let's just let them destroy us. Once they get to the top, they are basically greeted by the two terror dogs. Well, they're greeted by Dana and Lewis putting their hands up in the air to the temple and then like (laughs) electrocutes them to turn them into the terror dogs, which is pretty amazing. I have something to say. Why did the terror dogs come out? and possess people just to turn back into terror dogs. That is like a plot hole I want to answer. Like, why did they go through the extra steps and the extra drama just to to turn back into terror dogs? So I think the reason they turned into Dana and Lewis was just so that they could fit in and find each other. The reason I think they turned back into terror dogs in the end is to have that reveal of like, are they dead or are they not? But also... Because they want to do that scene where they're getting electrocuted and then they like fall over and immediately turn into the dogs, which it looks cool, but was so random. But don't you think it would be easier to find a terror dog in a crowd than a random person possessed by a terror dog? And even if you think about it, like the two people possessed by Zool and Vince are supposed to live in the apartment complex, like apartments across from each other. So there would be no need for them to possess humans anyway because they live right across from each other the best part about that is when lewis is getting chased and i mentioned earlier the dinner scene no one else sees the terror dog attacking him it's just him so if they can be hidden there was no point like they scared lewis and dana and possessed them but they're no reason they didn't even need to possess anyone really they could have just done it themselves you would assume that was the most New York scene ever. Like people just seeing some like cracked out guy running down the street, like knocking on windows and they just continue eating their dinner. But just day yeah, just another day in New York. But yeah, like there, there's just no point. They like Zool and Vince could have just gone up to the top floor and released Gozer this entire time. Like there was no reason for them to possess anybody. I mean, there was also basically no reason. 
after Dana opened her fridge, why they didn't just possess her and then go possess Lewis. And this all could have been done. They could have won, basically, but they had to let the Ghostbusters know. Remember in the beginning when we said there's no plot to this film? It, there's literally no plot. They just wanted to mess around. I mean, you can argue that they haven't been here for a few millennia and they wanted to see what the human world was like, but they didn't even explore the human world. Like, Zul just hangs out in Dana's apartment until some guy shows up and they can have sex. Like, they, Zul doesn't go anywhere. He just sits there and gets all dolled up. And then Lewis gets possessed and Vince instantly is like, I need to go find my husband. Actually, I think I know why they're so dramatic. It's because they're clearly two gay men. So you got to make an entrance somehow. Like if I'm going to find my future husband or my not even future husband, my husband from like a millennia ago. Yeah, I'm going to find the best looking girl or best looking man and doll up and have him find. But I'd be pretty mad if I was Zul and then uh, <laughs> Vince came to me with Lewis. This is really from earlier. I forgot to mention it. In the prison scene, uh, the Ghostbusters are like the prime example of that TikTok trend that's like no friend group dresses the same. Everyone dresses completely different for every occasion because they're in four completely different outfits. You have Egon in like a full suit for a university. Ray's in like his fanboy Ghostbusters gear. I think uh, Zedmore is just in like a cute little button-up shirt like Adam from Beetlejuice. And then you've got... Venkman just wears whatever straight white men wear back in the day. So after they end up turning back into the terror dogs, then finally Gozer the Gozerian appears, who, fun fact, was meant to be, hold on, was meant to be Grace Jones. They offered it to Grace Jones, which is why it looks so similar to Grace Jones, but it's not. Do you not know who Grace Jones is? Um, They don't know who Grace Jones is. They don't know who john blue she is i i did read that originally in the first draft it was supposed to be the architect of the building but then when they changed it to be a more gender fluid uh character it was supposed to be like a mix between um david bowie and grace jones which i i love um but gozer's everything the outfit is everything iconic the drama the conflama the everything it's it's perfect i love everything about gozer i also love when gozer first shows up and all the guys are like there's a random girl here and spangler's like so focused on gozer and is like it's the destroyer and like no one questions i think ray is like but i thought gozer was a guy and then gozer's like i can be whatever i want to be i'm gender fluid so i love that for them yeah i think egon is the one who says that uh gozer can take whatever form they want so gozer is definitely the non-binary icon that we need in this movie just to add to the full-on gayness that's already in this movie so once gozer appears they end up kind of walking up to her. Vankman pulls out this horrible joke and tells Ray to go get her just to really put the salt on the wound for Ray. Ray ends up stepping up and Gozer asks, Are you a god? In which Ray answers in the funniest way and says, No. And which <laughs> Gozer is like, Okay, well, I'm done with you. Goodbye. Tries to kill him. 
and we get Winston's best line of Ray, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. You missed the best part of that scene, though, where Gozer goes, are you a god? And he turns around and every single guy go, like starts nodding and is like, yes, you're a god. And he goes, no, I'm not. And then they all get like zapped almost off the side of the building. I think the irony, though, is earlier Ray tells Peter with the librarian to go get her. So now the tide has turned and Peter tells Ray to go get her. Thank you for explaining that joke to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's something else that I read somewhere. I don't know if any of you guys read it, but it kind of like blew my mind. There was a dinosaur named no, let me let me try to pronounce this after I've had a couple hard ciders. <laughs> Cruravacidor, which was actually dug up in 2017, and it resembled the terror dog. Like, the skull of it looked like a terror dog skull. And now it's, like, built up in the Royal Ontario Museum, and I think they named it after one of them i can't remember which one it was though but i was like oh my god like an actual dinosaur that looks like zool like can you imagine i need to go clearly yeah clearly we need to take a trip uh so after they have this whole thing happen and she shocks them they she kind of does this like backflip thing onto the i don't even know what i consider onto a stone thing in the back like some stone bench but i don't know if either of you have seen charlie's angels full throttle when demi moore is revealed spoiler alert as the villain of that movie and she does the backflip off the um observatory in los angeles and lands on her heels like it reminds me of that and i was like oh my god like pure drag high drag high camp like it was it was perfect it honestly made me think of like the Avengers campus Spider-Man animatronic thing they were working on, like all the stunt videos of them flinging it and it like backflipping into a net. That's what it looked like. So what we're saying is Universal needs to step it up and give us a whole Ghostbusters campus where we have Gozer instead of Spider-Man and we have to like collect all the terror dogs instead of robot spiders. Epic Universe, get on it. <laughs> Anyways, moving on to fighting Gozer. I love how in the beginning, like the ballroom scene, they have no idea what they're doing. They've never tested the equipment. Like they don't know how to turn it on. And then you get to the last fight with Gozer and they have like this whole choreographed like setup to use it. And they have like little commands for each other and they respond to each other. And it's just like so cute and stupid. Well, don't forget that after the hotel sequence is when we got that montage of them like doing all the ghost busting. So like they probably figured out like a cute little routine and like little drag number for each case like in there somewhere. I just love like the dynamic of going from having nothing and then you assume they figure it out during all of their sequences, which just shows that these were all theater kids growing up, like they're nerdy theater kids. And then by the time it matters, like they're set up, no one's watching them. It's literally just Gozer and the terror dogs. Like no one can see them, but they have to show up 
and chill out. There's definitely no timeline in this movie. A, a week could have passed. A month could have passed. A whole year could have passed, for all I know. But yeah, there's no timeline for that. Before we get to the proton packs and crossing the streams, another fun fact that I read, the business end of the proton pack before it was like the blaster thing were originally supposed to be like magic wands with a little ball at the end of it. And I really <laughs> want that that version of Ghostbusters, maybe an afterlife will get it, of like them like just flicking their magic wands and like the streams flying out of it. I, I need that that scene. JK Rowling read the like setup for Ghostbusters originally and was like, I'm gonna steal that. <laughs> Diagon Alley becomes New York and you get your own little proton wand to go collect ghosts. So they try and shoot for Gozer, uh, Ray saying aim for the flat top, and she or they just disappear. And then we just hear their voice in which they ask them to choose the destructor. And <laughs> I think David will talk about the plot hole here, but Venkman says not to think about anybody. And of course, Ray thinks about someone. So I got a couple things here. There is a scene where after they shoot Gozer, he disappears. And this is some fake science stuff, but... Egon starts explaining that they like completely reverse the particles or something and Gozer's just gone. And then you hear her voice later on being like, choose the form of the destructor. Do you want to talk about the plot holes? Yeah, I want to talk about these plot holes because they made me a little angry because Gozer says, choose the form of the destructor. And the whole group is like, okay, like, don't think of anything because if you think of like say J. Edgar Hoover, like J. Edgar Hoover is going to show up and destroy everything. And right then and there should a giant J. Edgar Hoover showed up in New York city, destroying everything, not the stay puffed marshmallow man, because if they spoke about J. Edgar Hoover, then they thought about J. Edgar Hoover. I just want to know because Gozer says choose the form of the destroyer doesn't explain shit and then they're immediately like anything we think of is going to be the destroyer. How do you know? How did you know that? But also who said it was going to be a giant one? Like why did it have to be this like 50 story stay puffed man? Because they were just trying to rip off King Kong at that point. Why wasn't it like this tiny stay puffed man on the building to fight them? <laughs> because I don't think Stay Puffed ever even attacked them. I think that he like walked through the street and destroyed everything and then they blew up the temple and it was like over. As much as I hate him, I think that's what the mini puffs whole shtick is supposed to be is that we had a big Stay Puff Marshmallow Man that destroyed something. So now we're going to see little ones destroy everything. But also the tiny Stay Puffs are so cute. I'm not even mad about it. Like I would love them to just run around it's like the little popcorns and killer clowns like they can't do much when they're tiny but if they all got together you'd be dead hard disagree yeah i uh if you see my twitter you should know i'm quite annoyed by the state mini stay puffs but i'm also like not that person that's like this isn't ghostbusters because it very much is ghostbusters it just seems like a marketing shtick to it all so obviously ray ends up choosing stay puffed in a giant over 100 foot tall stay puff marshmallow man 
walks down the street, which is a very well done scene for its time. Like it seemed like a working animatronic head <laughs> that was creepy. Um, and it seemed like they shot it similar to like Godzilla, where it was like a human in a suit in the walk down a mini set. See, I could tell it was a man in a suit walking down a miniature set because you could see the little gaps in between like his little marshmallow shoes and between his little marshmallow pants and like where his little marshmallow sleeves cut off from his little marshmallow gloves. Like you could just obviously tell this was a little marshmallow suit. Stay puff walk so the Michelin man could run. I don't know which one came first. I think the Michelin man might have come first. Well, then he <laughs> so Stay Puft ends up coming up. My favorite aspect of it is Ray's terrified. So Vankman then turns into turned to Egon and is like, what should we do? And Egon is like, I'm terrified beyond thought. Like, I can't even think about it. But then they end up thinking to finally cross the streams. Uh. And hopefully it'll completely destroy it. <laughs> Michelin Man came first, apparently. So they <laughs> cross the streams and completely destroy the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, which turns from a happy face to a very mad face as it slowly like gets disintegrated. You know, I think we should have explored their idea because they say he's a sailor alone in New York on a night off. We have to get him laid. They should have explored that before they just killed him because maybe he was a nice guy. You wouldn't know. But also, once he blows up and they're all covered in marshmallow, that's very much not what, like, cooled off marshmallow would be like. It was obviously shaving cream because if you ever get a melted marshmallow cooled, you can't get it off anything. That was the scariest part about that movie, honestly, is the fact that... It- after everything was said and done, everybody was covered in melted marshmallow because that shit is so sticky and like hard to get off. Like I I can't imagine anything worse. They really have Venkman as the only person that gets like nothing on him. Like him and Dana have a little bit. So it looks like they just went through a lot and they're all like windswept and they look nice. And then Zedmore is like head to toe. You see his little face sticking out of this like marshmallow cocoon. And then I don't know if Tully's covered anything. I think Lewis is just like walking around in his little burnt outfit. I feel bad for him though. When he was like, I want to get interviewed. I want to go in the car. And they like drag him off to the Red Cross to see if he's okay. Um, after this, we end up finding out the terror dogs have basically become statues. And you're led to believe that Dana and Lewis, or mostly Dana, has died. Um, until Dana kind of breaks out of the statue. And Fankman, of course, is the first one she sees. He ends up sending the other three Ghostbusters to go help out Lewis. They come down to the street, are welcomed as heroes. Dana gets to ride in the Ecto-1 with everyone else, while Lewis gets taken into the fire truck, even though he wants to join them. I love the little journey of Egon and Janine because it's so funny. Like the first time she hugs him, he's like so disgusted and doesn't want to touch her. And then he's like protecting her at the firehouse when the EPA shows up. And in the end, she runs up like a little wife with her headscarf wrapped around her and like her peacoat. And she like hugs him like she thought he came back from war and was going to die. I just think it's like top tier. 
You don't have anything to say? Nothing. I'm surprised. So, and that's basically how it ends. We get the amazing Ghostbusters song that haunts David to this day. But is a fantastic song. There's, like, there's no better main title. You know what? I do have something to say about that damn song. Because coming into work at HHN 29 every single night and going to Starbucks before work, that song would always play when we were in line at the at the Starbucks. And I was like, can you guys like just play anything else? Like it was always either the Ghostbusters theme or Adele's Chasing Pavements. And there was there was literally nothing else that ever played in that Starbucks. See, I never really got stuck in Ghostbusters, but because of the way the sound stages were set up, I would get stuck by Stranger Things and Never Ending Story would play on loop for hours straight. And so that's the thing that haunts for me from HHN 29. Like I enjoyed the Ghostbusters theme, but Stranger Things lives in my nightmares to this day. So yeah, that's basically how the movie ends. The movie ends pretty abruptly and like continues through the credits just because I think it's like, we don't know what to do, so we're just going to watch him right off into the sunset. And if we didn't need any more proof that Venkman is a total creep, he, like, carries uh, Dana down really weirdly and then, like, won't let her go. And in the end, she's just, like, sitting there waving, like, we made it. I survived. I'm not possessed. And he, like, grabs her and makes her kiss him. And she's just like, okay, I guess we're doing that now. And it was just so weird. I mean, neither of them seemed into that kiss, which makes me think, was it a Bill Murray Sigourney Weaver thing or was it a character thing? I want that to you right there. So I think this is the end of the episode. Uh, We talked about this honestly more than I thought we were. I appreciated getting to talk about this with my best friends because, um, because it's my favorite film of all time. I just finished my Lego Ghostbusters firehouse set. I own a proton pack. Uh, one day I'm going to own a terror dog. I'm changing my car into an Ecto-1. Like, this is my life, basically. And I think I think I speak for Allison and Chris when I say happy birthday, Bryce. We would have recorded anything for your special day. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you were able to talk about your favorite movie with us. And I think it's very fitting. We're recording this like a few days after the Ghostbusters anniversary or Ghostbusters Day or whatever it was. Like yeah, their 37th, 30 something. It's been out for a while, longer than I have. So <laughs> as we as we wrap down from this episode, let's go ahead and try and call this Ghostbusters line real quick and see if it's still live. Maybe. (laughs) What a way to end this episode. So we're going to go ahead and end this out. Thank you for chatting 
with Ghostbusters with me. Thank you for listening about Ghostbusters. If you want to talk about Ghostbusters, I would probably say come talk to me. Don't talk to our three. They'll probably be over it. But <laughs> I'm Bryce. My Twitter handle is going to be at Dorietti. I'm Allison, and you can still find me at Reflections of Fear because I'm not spelling it out. I'm David. You could reach me on Twitter at Hot for Creature. That's H O T, the number four, C R E A T U R E, Hot for Creature. And I'm Chris. You can reach me at BuckSawyer29. And you can interact with all of us on our podcast Twitter at ReflectFearPod. And we are now on Instagram, also at ReflectFearPod. We tend to post a lot of crazy things. We posted a poll for Icon Tinder for last week, which was a lot of fun. We post sneak peeks for each episode before we release them. So it's just kind of like a fun time on that Twitter and Instagram. But thank you for joining us. Look underneath your bed, check your closet, and say our name three times. Bye. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass.